Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, it's Brendan here with Mark as usual, thank goodness, because it would be boring just listening to me every week. It's the week ending January the 18th, 2019, Mark, and I'm, we were talking off air a little bit. It's, it's one of those weeks I'm a bit weary this week, Mark, and I think part of it part of it is the weather, and it is very hot and sticky here down in Melbourne, and we always know when it's hot and sticky in January when it is tennis season, when the Australian Open is on. We always get that extreme heat policy that's in- introduced for a few of the matches there, and um, I love watching tennis, and as you know, Mark, my girls played tennis at a reasonable level for many years, and um, we used to go to the tennis the Australian Open several times um well several times over the over the many years we have gone we have gone every year is what I'm trying to say <laughs> for several years but I didn't go this year um Sophie went today and it was hot and steamy as usual so I've been been sitting up at night watching some of the matches and some of the pre-Australian Open matches as well um to Almost midnight, a couple of nights. Um, so that's probably part of the reason why I'm a bit tired. But who have I don't you got know. your you know what... eye on, Brendan? Who have you got your eye on? Oh, who have I got my eye on? Um, well, the youngsters, of course. The youngsters, of course. I, I have a little bit of a soft spot for old um, Roger Federer because I expect this will be his last year, even though he says that will be his last year every year. But he's been quite clever, I think, with the way he concentrates just on the Grand Slams these days and it seems to have worked exceptionally well the last year or two and um, yeah I just I just find his the way he plays it's very elegant I know a lot of people don't like him but I just like the way he plays um, uh, as opposed to the other player I, I like very much is, is Rafa <clears throat> Rafa Nadal, and um, you know he's got he just gets out there and he just hammers the ball. But I think he's paid for it um, big time with his body, um, the way it's sort of been beaten up over the years with the punishing way he runs around the court, and that's exactly what's happened with with um, with um, Andy Murray, who has just announced that this is potentially his last event. Um, it was a tearful announcement too, wasn't it, Brendan? It, it certainly was. And um, I watched his match um, and he um, did an amazing five-setter that he lasted to. Um, and at the end they did a little um, a little, um, a little video um, presentation by some of the other players um, saying how much they'll miss him if this is his last event. And... Um, yeah, so that was a, a little bit sad there. But, yeah, I'm keeping my eye on the youngsters, having said all that. Um, Alex, um, the young 19-year-old, I think he's 19. Dimonor or Dimonor, I always get um, the pronunciation wrong, um, the Australian. Um, he's he's fantastic. He never stops. And his mentor is Leighton Hewitt, um, who, um, as you know, Mark, he never stopped um, giving up, even to the very last point. So, um yeah, that's a, probably the one I'm keeping an eye on. And um, it's good to see a few Aussies there um, in the mix at the Australian Open because um, a few years back there wasn't many Australian players who were doing doing well there, Mark. So, yeah, do you, do you have anybody in particular you like to watch? Well, I, I do, Brendan. I am but on and off the uh, tennis court that I I like to follow the, the – uh, I don't know the roller coaster ride that is Nick Kyrgios. Uh, he, um, he, I have, you know, he's a as well as an outstanding tennis player. He's a basketballer, so um, uh, that it's always um, interesting to see how he crosses those things over. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, um, the the pressures of um, that elite athletic endeavour. Um, it, uh, I, I see so many of the successful athletes seem to do it, you know, almost standing on their head with relative ease. Uh, but I have no doubt that pressure tells and um, 
and Nick is one of the people that uh, it does seem to tell quite, um, you know, obviously on. Um, is he is he actually playing at the moment, Brendan? He is playing as we record, um, but I do not have the television on in order to not distract me from the podcast, Mark. So, um, yes, I think he's playing tonight um, and that gives away when we're recording this particular podcast because this is round one of the open and we're recording on a Tuesday night this week Mark um, for this one yeah he's a bit of a tortured genius isn't he um, and um, you do worry about the mental health of some of these players although sometimes you don't feel um, well I don't um, feel particularly um, um, let me say well, let me try and put it nicely um, um, Sometimes I think, gee, they're making a lot of money. Perhaps um, they need to just pull their head in and <laughs> um, realise that um, they're making a lot of money and that, um, hey, there's other people in other dro- jobs, hence like our introduction to our topic this week, Buck, um, that are also stressful um, and yet including veterinary veterinary um, pursuits, veterinary technicians, veterinary nurses, which is what we're going to talk about this week, Um and veterinarians, of course, um, and we don't get paid anywhere near as much as these people, and yet um, our stress levels are just as high, Mark. So, yeah, that's my subtle way of saying sometimes they need to just get a grip. They're playing a game, a game of hitting a ball around a court. They're not um, they're not saving lives like veterinarians, are they, Mark? <laughs> so, yes, yes. I'll get off ele- my- elegantly. Elegantly put from... (laughs) (laughs) I'll get off my um, high horse there, Mark, because I'm about to come crash into the ground. And I want to say hello to one of our listeners. Um, One being the operative word, Mark, we have one listener in South Dakota in the US. And I was just having a little browse through the statistics and they've broken down our subscriber base to within the US at least um, to the states of the US. And um, I just noticed we just have one sole listener in South Dakota. Um, the most popular states in the US where we have listeners, Mark, just for interest. I mean, one one I thought would be obvious, and that's California. Um, but the most um, listeners are from Ohio, and the second most listeners are from Pennsylvania State um, in the US, and California's third, Mark. But um, yeah, big shout out to our listener in South Dakota, and he or she can um, send us an email and I reckon we can arrange a little prize pack for that person if they can get in contact with us because they're sitting there in South Dakota on their lonesome listening to our podcast. Good on you. You need to um, need to get a few more friends, I think, and um, encourage them to subscribe to the Vet Podcast at vetgurus.com. So that's my introduction, Mark. Um, I think we need to announce something um, very exciting, and that's about our sponsors, Mark. Do you want to... Um, Tell our listeners about our sponsors. Well, I do, Brendan. I I um, am very excited to um, announce that we've re-signed our uh, our wonderful sponsors who've been with us. I think is it for the last six months. Um, That's correct. Uh, the uh, the team at Chemical Essentials, who are the Australian distributor for uh, the uh, F10 range of products, which uh, both of us use extensively in our hospitals, um, and um, Small Animal Nutrition, uh, the uh, wonderful Australian distributors of the excellent Oxbow products, um, and uh, and it is uh, with great pleasure um, that I um, uh, record herein that um, they're still associated with us. They haven't been so upset with us that they've signed off yet. Um, yes, but, yeah. and that was, that was sorry, Mark, that was fantastic that they um, were keen on helping us out to help um, pay for our um, ongoing costs for the podcast. So thank you very much, and um, we'll do a shout-out with a couple of their products um, during the next six months or so, and, and we're, we're just wrapped because, you know, as, as, as we keep saying, they're great products and, and they're, even a greater people, Mark, um, the owners of those um, particular companies. And you're about to announce we do have a, a third sponsor um, that has signed up. We have managed to um, draw the interest of a, another um, a distributor of uh, veterinary products, particularly products that are of interest to those of us who work with 
exotic and unusual animals. So I'm very proud to announce that um, Microchips Australia have come on board and uh, have joined the the uh, uh, rather elite group of um, uh, sponsors of the Vet Gurus podcast. And Microchips Australia is a strain distributor of a particular product we use very frequently in exotic practice, and that's the Lone Star Retractor, Mark. And um, I think we have mentioned it in in previous podcasts about surgical aspects of dealing with unusual pets, but it can also be used in dog and cat um, surgery as well. And it's basically a a helping hand. It's a third hand, isn't it, Mark? So I don't want to do this as an advertorial because... um, (laughs) It'll turn off our, our listeners, so I'm going to stop there. But it's a fantastic product, and, and we will talk about um, uh, that particular product a little bit more when we um, have a an episode again about the surgical excuse me surgical aspects of exotic pet medicine. And um, yeah, thanks to Microchips Australia for helping us out as well. So we've got three fantastic sponsors, and if you go to vetgurus.com. Look at the show notes and you'll see the links to their site. So we encourage you to at least look over their sites so you can support them because they support us. Yeah. So that's enough of the of the sponsorship spiel, Mark. I think we should jump into some news stories. What news do you have for me today? Well, Brendan, I'm just looking across these uh, these um articles that uh, we've discussed. Um, I'm going to talk first of all about the report that shows a significant increase in the number of veterinary students. Um, And so uh, there's uh, been a little bit of a study done um, where they've looked at the uh, number of veterinary students between 2007 and 2018. um, And uh, it notes that, um, that amongst all the university degrees, um, the biological sciences and mathematics really uh, stand out, uh, but head and shoulders above those um, was veterinary science, and it shows there's been a 47% increase in the number of students over the that, uh, that particular decade. Um, I was particularly fascinated by this report because, um, well, in Australia here, the the, the um, sort of word on the ground is that we don't have enough veterinarians. It's a bit of a paradoxical situation, Brendan, because if you look back maybe, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, as more of the universities were coming online, as we had uh, uh, James Cook and um, and Adelaide uh, join the the uh, growing club of veterinary schools in Australia, there was a, a little bit of a... a uh, I don't know, a groundswell, a a commentary uh, in the profession that we were going to be overwhelmed with vets and it would drive our quality of life down because, uh, you know, many vets would mean that that prices would drop and competition would be uh, excessively increased. But um, what seemed to happen is that there's been a, a vast increase in the requirement for veterinarians and vert certainly outstripping the supply um, and as both of us know as we look for um, in, uh, potential future employees there's just not a huge number of um, veterinarians to be had uh, as uh, future employees so it's uh, pleasing to note these trends in overseas universities and uh, and I wouldn't be surprised at all Brendan if uh, if we saw some sort of uh, um, similar pattern uh, if uh, occur in the Australian university scene um, over the last 10 years. Yes, and I know what you mean about the word on the ground, as you say, that there are certainly a lot of practices here in Victoria that are trying to get veterinarians to work in their practices, and yet there does not seem to be many people applying for the positions. And yet you look at the statistics of how many veterinarians are being pushed out of the vet schools in Australia. It's increasing every year. So what's happening to the mark? What is happening to all these? Do you want to hear my theory, Brendan? 
one of my theories. I'd love to hear your theory there, Mark. Um, I'm going to put myself on mute and I'm going to have a little swig of drink <laughs> while I listen to your theory. So just remind me to unmute myself if you can't In hear about me 10 minutes end. when I'm finished. Yes. Away you go. <laughs> um, my theory is, Brendan, that, um, that the graduate veterinarian um, doesn't stay in the profession as uh, universally as they once did. And I make no value judgment about this. In fact, I think it may well be a good thing. But what tends to happen, instead of getting a lifetime, full-time veterinarian entering the profession, what we generally find now with each graduate is that um, is that they're, uh, they may be doing their veterinary degree for a period of time, their veterinary profession for a period of time using their degree, and then they um, flick to some other um, occupation, um, some other vocation for a period of time. Some of them come back maybe part-time, maybe full-time at some point later in their life, Um, but we're not getting, for each graduate, we're not getting a full-time, lifetime uh, veterinary private practice professional. Um, and so I think that, um, that and one of the interesting statistics we saw in New South Wales when we did some analysis here was that this is a non-gender related thing. I've heard people say to me, oh, that's, this is because the, the, uh, the feminization of the profession that uh, the majority of uh, graduating vets are, are now female, that this is the reason. And it clearly is not um, that uh, just as many males are shifting out of the profession after five, ten years and doing something else um, as females. And sometimes that's parenting, sometimes it's another vocation, um, sometimes it's using their veterinary degree in another way. Um, but um, but I, I think the simple fact is that we're, for each graduate, we're getting far less than that full-time, lifetime professional in uh, in veterinary clinical practice. What do you think about that, Brendan? Excellent, excellent theory, Mark. Excellent theory. I've got nothing to add to that. Um, your logic, as always, well, usually is impeccable. <laughs> That's it's not what you usually say. Yes, no. <laughs> yes, it is. Of course it is. Well, my first news article, Mark, and that one was actually my article. I thought um, I did that. If you look at the agenda there, <laughs> um, so thank you very much. And I'll, I'll have to quickly um, read, read over one agenda. of the other articles. Yes. <laughs> my first article is why do floppy-eared dogs seem friendlier? And I found this quite um, quite amusing and of interest. And um, it is the whole thought that people, we make judge, judgments very quickly, don't we, about people um, and um animals as well and um, based on certain characteristics in dogs one of these is the shape of their ears according to this article and um, the interesting thing that I found with this is the TSA in America is using more floppy-eared dogs to sniff out explosives because not that they're better at sniffing out explosives or the drug dogs as well um, because the agency says pointy-eared dogs are scarier because People do not like pointy-eared dogs, Mark, um, apparently. Um, and scanning down this article, um, as I go um, with my preparation here is um, one minute of preparation <laughs> here. <laughs> um, in uh, talks a little bit about Darwinism as well. But in 2013, a study was done in Madison University in Virginia and the University of Texas at Austin with 124 participants where they showed an image of a dog. In one, it was the identical dog, but it had a yellow coat, and in one photo, a black coat in another. And the other photo showed the same dog, but in one image, it had floppy ears, and in the other image, it had pointed ears. And participants found the dogs with the yellow coat or the floppy ears to be more agreeable and emotionally stable than the dogs with a black coat or pricked ears. So the thought is that it is um, it, potentially it is because we perceive floppy-eared dogs as being friendlier because in the past military dogs and police dogs, breeds such as German Shepherds, Dobermans, those sorts of dogs um, have erect p- 
pointed ears and people associate them with being aggressive, unfriendly dogs. And they think that's probably what's happening with, with people when they look at dogs with floppy ears and they say, isn't that a cute dog? So it's perception bias markup that people are having with it. So I, um, I think it's quite good logic, this little story there. Um, so any thoughts on this one, Mark? Mark? Um, or you've, no, no. I, you've, you're, you've, you've flopped your ear down and you've gone to sleep. I've, I've, I, I thought it was very interesting because one of the things we do with um, many of our clients, maybe at you know that um, sort of last puppy vaccination or sometime around their first year of life, we're talking to them about recognising when their dog is relaxed and when their dog is uh, on alert or uh, vigilant. Um, and the, one of the things, obviously, we pay attention to is the position of the ears, that dogs that are hyper-alert, hyper-vigilant, maybe excessively aroused, are going to have those pricked ears, almost irrespective of the breed, and those dogs that are you know relaxed and happy are likely to have a... Um, um, they might not flop the ears down, but the ears will be in a slightly different position. So it's interesting that there may be more factors than simply the the uh, the the history of those um, alert dogs being involved in combat duties or whatever. Uh, it may actually be yes. a, a behavioural thing that people communication. Yes. Um, well, the other reason why this story interested me, Mark, is I'm in the middle of writing a little bit of a summary of the anatomy of the rabbit's ear um, and lop breeds and ear conditions in lop breeds and the um, the reason why the lop breed rabbit has the, the lop, the floppy ear, um, is a, basically a little gap in the, in the three cartilages of the ear that then makes that little ear flop over and uh, makes them prone to ear conditions. Um, and I think that's why I picked up on this particular story because I was in the middle of writing a little a little summary of that for a presentation I have to give soon. Um, you want to talk about whales, Mark, don't you? <laughs> I, um, I was just about <laughs> to take your topic again, I think. No, you take you take the hummingbird <laughs> one then. Okay, I'll do I'll do the whales. I'll Good on you. Um, well, you know it is a bird topic, and and the um, I'm instantly um, attracted to uh, to the, the bird topics. Of, um, I, I uh, shouldn't. Well, I'll tell you about it um, later on. But um, this one in particular was exciting because it's hummingbirds, and um, as you know, my. Uh, son is in America at the moment, and it reminded me of one of the trips we went to America and in California saw hummingbirds for the first time. And and they are, you know, they're they're different, Brenda. They're not like other birds. The way they fly, the way they behave, it um, it is reminiscent of insects and the size of them. Um, they are amazing little animals, and so it um it it is no big. Uh, it, did, it was an interesting topic for me to find that um, that uh, there is some research now that suggests that uh, competition between individual hummingbirds can be so fierce um, that they actually end up fighting. I sort of had this vision that these little fragile butterfly-like birds would never, you know, they they live life on the edge of so many physiological limits that fighting would be something that would just push them over the edge. So it's a little bit of a surprise to realise that they do fight for resources quite uh, uh, vigorously. And and interestingly enough, they not only use their long beaks, which have evolved to get into flowers in almost a sword fighting fashion, um, but there's been some evolutionary pressure for those specialised beaks to develop um, characteristics beyond that required to suck the nectar up um, and become strengthened or, or altered shape um, so that they're more effective at fighting off competitors, Brendan. Which is a little bit of a surprise because you would think that these bloody little animals that weigh, you know, five grams or something, um, that they wouldn't have any spare resources to be tipping into additional keratin, which uh, which might change the characteristic of their beak. Um, but high-speed cameras... 
have revealed that they do, in fact, um, uh, take a fair bit of time to beat up on each other. Um, and some of these bizarre bill tips, uh, which uh, don't make any sense in terms of collecting um, nectar more efficiently, are exceedingly useful in these fights. They're amazing birds, I must admit. And um, some of the photos that um, I've seen of those um, from a couple of particular photographers, I'm waiting for your spectacular hummingbird photos, Mark, when you um, get out there and stalk a few hummingbirds. Um, they are, um, I'm in awe of the photographers who managed to get those pics um, of those hummingbirds. Um, when you see how detailed those pictures are for those animals that are flying at that um that rate they are flying or hovering, um, it's it's it, they're incredible. And yeah, to spend so much energy or time and effort into fighting and um, not looking for that nectar that they so desperately need to keep their metabolic rate going is um, yeah quite curious, isn't it, Mark? Um, it is an interesting thing that um, that uh, that um, what do they call it? That um, one of the factors that drives evolution, the sexual drive. Um, that, um, you know, even amongst something as finely tuned and with few resources as a hummingbird, um, the pressure on them to develop weapons to fight off others to maintain a territory so they can breed is still there. It certainly is. And speaking of breeding, Mark, the last news story, which I'll take, <laughs> is about killer whale pregnancies. And there's a special group of orcas living in Washington's Puget Sound which is the southern resident killer whales, and they're a genetically distinct population, which are considered endangered, critically endangered, in fact, with only around about 74 individuals left. And until previously, they were struggling to breed, Mark. And um, 2019 began with some positive news, according to Mother Nature Network, which is where this article is from. And the Centre for Whale Research first spotted a calf, Mark. And um, they only worked out a couple of years ago why the southern resident orcas could not successfully reproduce. And it, they were a bit confused about why this wasn't happening and the thing that I found quite interesting was they use specially trained dogs Mark to track down orca scats so dogs who search for orca poo and they collected their poo samples for about six years and then they analyzed the DNA and the hormones within the 350 samples they gathered according to a paper published in PLOS One and they worked out that it was the low availability of Chinook salmon, Mark, which was the stressor that has um, resulted in poor reproductive viability and um, a significant cause of late pregnancy failure, including unobserved perinatal loss in them. Um, so, yeah, it's a lack of salmon, Mark. Um, so there's a very famous... Um, very famous advert, isn't there, in Australia that was on um, years ago and used to talk about the Chinook salmon, didn't it, Mark? I'm trying to think who that was for, that advert of someone on television. Can you remember that? All. Must have been, must have been oh, a yeah, Melbourne must have thing. Been. Yeah, maybe it was. Um, so, yeah, so basically they worked out that um, it's not enough fish for these orcas to eat um, and so they're concentrating on saving the Chinook salmon runs that could help save the Puget Sound orcas and also reducing pollution and other factors as well to help with the number of salmon to increase so they can get eaten so the orcas can breed and complete the circle of life, Mark. Scat-sniffing dogs, Brendan. That, the, you, the irony of that is that um, uh, last year I was... Um, down in Tasmania, as you know, and uh, I, one of the photography workshops I was on was actually uh, for the purpose of taking photographs for an advertising campaign for the Masked Owls of Tasmania um, so that uh, the university down there could train a couple of scat-sniffing dogs as well. It seems to be like a bit of a go-to thing at the moment that um, animals that are hard to locate um, that are sparse and and uh, have a difficult, um, uh, you know, a difficult to identify the areas that they're in. Scat sniffing dogs seem to be on the rise, in my opinion, Brendan. 
it's the um, flavour of the month, the smell of the month, is it? Um, I think I'd much prefer a, a truffle-sniffing dog if I had trained up one of my dogs. Mark, I'd want them to get some truffles for me and um, perhaps have a little... I could retire from being a veterinarian and go out um, digging up truffles and um, refining my culinary skills with um, truffle cooking. Yeah, so we should talk. We should have a few recipes on the program, Mark. I've decided I think, just um, on the spur of the moment. I think you've come up with a brilliant idea. What do you think? Um, yeah, recipes for vets and veterinary nurses. Um, we should do that. Um, we'll start. Maybe we should start next week. Okay. We've been blabbering on for half an hour already, Mark, um, and I think a lot of people will have probably fast-forwarded their um, podcast um, to get to our main news story. So here it is. Here's our main topic. So our main topic this week is for the veterinary nurses or the veterinary technicians, as they're called in some regions of the world, and we title this podcast How to Train Your Vet. So we wanted to chat a little uh, or muse a little bit about um how veterinary nurses or technicians can um, can look after their veterinarians and um, learn from their veterinarians, but also get the vets to do the right thing. Um, because as you know, Mark, being a veterinarian and myself being a veterinarian, we, um, we tend to think we're doing the right thing all the time and we tend to boss our, our staff around all the time. And um, I think my staff, anyway. I don't know about your staff, Mark. They've 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 worked me out, and they work out when when I'm being serious, and when, and when they can just ignore me and um, just go ahead and keep doing the same thing they were doing, which is probably most of the time. Um, and realise that hey, perhaps Brendan was it just a little bit stressed out at that particular moment in time, and that um, his frown. That he gave them, or his raised voice, which I rarely do. Actually, my my newest nurse, Mark, she said to me, "Brendan, you're the quietest veterinarian I've ever worked with. Um, you don't throw stuff around, and you don't yell and scream um, at least once a week or once a day. Um, what's wrong with you?" And I was a bit saddened by that, Mark. I thought, if that's the norm. What's wrong with our profession and what's wrong with veterinarians if we're, we're shouting and screaming at our at our staff all the time? So how to train your vet. So this is aimed at the vet nurses and vet technicians, Mark, and uh, I think um, you can well, I, maybe I, give the I, first I was, tip I was just gonna say, or suggestion. I think this is uh, such a good idea, Brendan, because... Um, you know, we we a lot of our uh, discussions are focused. They probably we we do take the time to try and make as much information for the whole of the profession. Um, uh, but I think this is one where just focusing on that uh, that what sort of things the veterinary support personnel should be aware of. Um, I think it's a useful thing. I look. I suspect in some senses we're um, preaching to the converted, we're singing to the choir. The the uh, um, many experienced uh, vet nurses or vet technicians will have already figured out most of the things we're going to talk about. But when you're first getting a job at a veterinary practice, it um, it can all be such so new and shiny and and uh, bright and fulfilling and. Um, everything you dreamed of and everything you didn't dream of that um, sometimes just keeping in mind the way that a vet's mind works and how you can lead them to a good place so that they're not doing those sorts of things that uh, that you talked about, Brendan. I, I am a little bit surprised that, uh, that that stuff happens. I think you and I are probably a little bit similar in that we're a bit philosophical about the the uh, sometimes stressful things that happen in our workplace. Uh, we're always involved in the emotions of our uh, clients and their pets, so um, it does sometimes uh, tell on us. And so, having staff that understand that and know how to respond and um, and uh, like you said, know when to listen to us, know when not to listen to us. Um, that's a really good thing. So the first thing I think um, uh, that we'd quickly touch on is that a lot of these things will be apparent to uh, employers at the time that you're trying to get a job. And so I think it is um, a useful thing to be aware of that um, that uh, the people 
interviewing uh, for veterinary support staff, um, they're likely to be looking for particular things about the way that um, the support staff in fact do support the veterinarians. Um, Probably the first one and the most important one is their ability to um, have some empathy and communicate well. Um, Those two things uh, are not you know, it's very just about everyone will write them on their resume um, and answer questions in a short interview to suggest that they have those things. But um, but demonstrating them consistently, maybe during a trial day or during the first few months of a position, um, they will really stand out to um, a veterinary employer, and they will um, doubtless build be be the basis of. Um, you know, most good things that happen in practice. So I think getting a job, having some empathy and working on communication is a good starting point. And as you know, Martin, that's a method that I I use in interviewing veterinary nurses or technicians and, and veterinarians as well, in that I'd leave them out in the waiting room, stewing for five or ten minutes, um, but having to chat to the reception veterinary nurse there and if they don't get on with that veterinary nurse, um, there's no way they're going to be employed by the practice because whether they like it or not with the veterinary nurses, they and same as the veterinarians, but we'll stick with the veterinary nurses, um, they need to be a people person because you're dealing with clients, you're dealing with the other team members especially, and you're dealing with that problematic person, the veterinarian, in the clinic. So it's really important that you try and, watch other staff members once you are employed but if you just sit in there applying for that position um, I'd really stress the aspects of your personality that can be of benefit to the practice what works for you how you can add to a team you might be that that super calm person that can defuse a situation when the vet's yelling and screaming and you just stand catching the catching all the surgical (laughs) instruments as they're throwing them um, at you and just um, gently putting them back in the autoclave to be um, re-sterilised. So I I think it's a key aspect that you need to just sort of not only um, put out there what what you're good at, but when when you get that position, and hopefully you do get that position that you've just applied for, that do you concentrate on looking at the dynamics between all those staff members, Mark, and, and seeing how those more experienced members of the practice team deal with the veterinarian. And and it literally, I know we're, we're being a little bit facetious, but it, it's true, isn't it? You need to be able to take that vet down off their high horse and, and say, look, pull your head in. Um, we're all working here together. And it's not a hierarchy. It should be we're all one um, within the clinic, whether whether the kennel um, hand or the or the part time cleaner in the clinic or the or the delivery person or the or the um, or the head vet in the practice. Um, you're all working together and you're all doing your job to your best of your ability. And that's where asking and looking at the other team members, the other veterinary nurses there that are helping you and see how they deal with that vet who who um, can be a little bit troublesome, Mark. Um, and and that's where you soon find out, especially if you're on a trial, you'll find out whether or not um, the practice was as good as what you thought it was going to be um, during that interview. Everybody's pretty starry-eyed, both from an employee and an employer perspective, aren't they, Mark? And that's where you need a bit of a a bit of a trial period where everybody can work out, hey, does this personality fit with our practice and vice versa? It is paradoxical, Brendan, that um, that in our profession, which is, you know, generally known to be focused on animal welfare and animal health, um, the um, you said it, the phrase uh, people, person, you, you do need to um, communicate well with the people that you work with and you need to understand the clients. Clients are often in an extremely emotional state and they have multiple um, concerns about the health of their animal, the emotions of the rest of the people in their family and the finances all at once, which makes them, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, 
dangerous mix which can lead to um, emotional outbursts which are uh, sometimes offensive and unacceptable but um, oftentimes they're they're just the expression of uh, a frustrated person and um, and being able to deal with that um, being a people person and being able to communicate is definitely one of the foundational things um, that veterinary support staff need but you highlight another aspect of that people person um, that uh, ability to communicate with people and I don't want anyone to leave our podcast thinking where um, we're validating a workplace where someone would be uh, behaving you know we're talking a bit like you said facetiously uh, uh, but um, there should be no workplace where it's acceptable to be abusive or um, uh, throw things those things are, uh, are not um, acceptable but there are times I know there are times when I get stressed and um, and while I might not resort to um, those unacceptable means I am I am I do tend to be short with people at times and um, and the staff knowing when I'm dealing with things and giving me some space and knowing that in my stressed manner I will look at um, you know I've got this unfortunate habit of looking at minutiae at the smaller and smaller details the more I get stressed and I get more stressed out by those tiny details which in a week down the track don't matter at all but um, if the staff weren't aware um, the, the other vets and the staff weren't aware with that that's the way my stress works then you know there could be a fight over something that was inconsequential but they know when to just go Mark's having one of those days let's leave him alone that's right and that's how you train your vet as far as these support staff go they they work out that okay when Mark's doing this the best way to defuse this situation is to either leave him alone or, or, hey, let's just give him a cup of coffee or let's just um, give him his favourite little treat or whatever that works to calm Mark down. And the same happens with me. And I, and, I, and that's where for inexperienced staff, new staff, um, follow that experienced nurse around, that technician around who's a practice manager and work out, hey, what, what are the triggers with their particular veterinarians that um, set them off and stress them out and um, then stresses everybody else out in the clinic because Mark's stressed and Brenda's stressed and um, it shows um, in front of the clients and then the clients. And guess who gets dumped with it all? It's the, it's the support staff, especially at reception when that um, animal goes home or after the consultation out in that waiting room, Mark, isn't it? That's where the client dumps on the veterinary nurse or the veterinary technician or receptionist, um, however you want to call it, who sat out there, they're the one who gets the abuse from, hey, I wasn't treated very well in the consultation by the vet, but they don't yell and scream at the vet, they yell and scream at, the, unfortunately, the veterinary nurse or technician or receptionist, Mark, and, and it is something that... Um, unfortunately is part of the game as far as you have to deal with it and, and there's mechanisms and, and, and methods to defuse the angry client and I think we've gone through that in a, in a previous podcast but um, and that's something that you need to have ongoing training with but um, you need to also then go back to that veterinarian and say hey that client came out of that consultation and they gave me an earful what did you say to them, Brendan, um, to, to really fire them up? And and I may not have realised that I'd got on the wrong side and of that. Brendan, client. sometimes. Um, and unless you speak up, sorry, unless you and unless that unless that vet nurse speaks up and says that to me, I'm never going to know. So and and um, they should never be shy in, in saying that and say, "Hey, this client has just yelled and screamed at me," and it may have been something that I that I mentioned in the consult. Well, it it, it probably was, um, and then I can say, "Oh, okay." They did react a little bit funny to when I said X, and then in retrospect, looking back on it, um, I said the wrong thing, and then we can talk through it and walk through the defusing of the situation and it is what you say is so true that um that communication about the team that's dealing with the client the communication between the team members um is absolutely critical and um you know i know there's been times when i've assumed that a client uh you know 
know, they've come in with a dog that has a a, a sore eye, and I've um, uh, done a bunch of additional tests. I've fluorescened it. I've got the magnification out. I've whacked the toner pen on it. Um, and all of a sudden, I've generated a fairly significant invoice. And it, and if I'm not careful to explain that to the client that I'm all these things I'm doing are going to add to the cost, but they're important so that we can save your dog's eye, um, then they get to the front counter. And when they are hit with a significant invoice that they weren't expecting, they blow up. And so that receptionist coming to me and going, Mark, you've got to make sure that you inform the client of the costs that are involved, then the things that I've done, you know, uh, are not confrontational, but they're just a failure of communication. Um, knowing about that, the receptionist informing me and, and allowing me to change my behavior makes the place better for everyone. So being trained um, by the receptionist is an excellent way to ensure that that doesn't happen. And the stress levels for everybody in the practice goes down when that happens, that potential situation is going to occur again. Hopefully it doesn't happen because Brendan has been <laughs> told not to do it or say that thing anymore. Um, and it doesn't happen. Well, hopefully it doesn't happen very often anymore. So, yeah, it's a, I think it, so it's, it, I don't think ever anything we've said so far is, is mind-blowingly um, different than what happens in any, any other industry, Mark, but it's something that is not discussed very often and I think there's that hierarchical thing that I don't like, as you know, um, with vets versus nurses or, or, you know, vets seeing themselves as the top of the tree um, in in the um, hierarchy of, of, of veterinary medicine and it's everybody's on the same level as far as I'm concerned. We're all trying to do the same job. We're all um, different. We all play slightly different roles on the same team and the outcomes dependent on each member of the team. Yes, I remember, Mark, I'll tell you, you said I need to tell you tell a few anecdotes or I'll get into a few stories. I, I remember once I was, I was, and you just reminded me then of, of, a, of, a, of a silly little one-liner, but it's um, a true story. Um, I when I was um, at a party one day and um, somebody came up to me, this very assertive person um, came up to me and introduced themselves. Um, I'll call them Mark um, just for just for interest. And the person came up to me and, and vigorously shook my hand and said, hello, I'm Mark, I'm a lawyer. Um, and um, I find that quite interesting that somebody would have to, you know, um, very forcefully um, suggest or, or announce that um, their profession is that they are a lawyer. I mean, I'm sure they're proud of being a lawyer or a barrister or, or an attorney, as you'd call them in the US. Um, but it's certainly not something um, I would say, Mark, would you would you do that as your opening line to somebody? Well, uh, usually not because they're going to ask me about their dog's itch as soon as I say <laughs> That's right. I, well, actually, the funny you should say that. It's not rare that I'll, I'll I will not say that I'm a veterinarian at all, and not call myself. You, I've heard um, you announce um, you're a bus driver to some people. <laughs> You'd be surprised what jobs I've had in the past, Mark. Um, yes. So I just I just um, looked him straight in the eye and said to him. Um, so he said, to, yeah. So he said to me, I'm. I'm my name's Mark, I'm a lawyer, and I shook his hand because he was vigorously shaking my hand, and I said, oh, hi, Mark, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope you'll get over it one day. <laughs> and I think he didn't talk to me for the rest of the night. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I just do not like the whole um, aspect of us versus them um, in the practice um, or any in any workplace, Mark. Um, it doesn't worry me if um, I don't care who you are, if you're a, you know, a, a, um, a bus driver or, a, or, or working at a, um, at a coffee shop, you know, you're doing the best job you can, hopefully, and um, you shouldn't be looked down upon. Um, we're all, we're all here together, aren't we? Exactly right. The, um, the, I love the way that you set this agenda up with um, uh, how to train your vet. And it, it is a little bit 
puppy preschool-like in some of the headings. And I did particularly enjoy the one that um, talked about feeding them. Um, and I, I enjoy that topic, you know, how much I show my food. But I also think that it's one of the problems in veterinary practice that um, that we really get, uh, you know, the 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 nature of our businesses is such that it is easy to be swept up in the energy of the day and not necessarily take in the necessary calories um, to maintain yourself. And of course, um, what what's that? Um, you know, we're we're really on an advertising bent today. But there's a an ad in Australia which talks about being. Um, hungry, angry, um, and uh, and definitely there's an element of that really happening in veterinary practice when people miss out on meals and develop low blood glucose and um, and their temper is shortened. Does that happen to you, Brendan? Well, yeah, it does. Um, but what I tend to do is I have a whole box of muesli bars um, sitting on my desk and I make sure I have a bit of a bunch on one of them. Uh, in between surgeries or in between consultations when I'm sitting there writing up my histories in between a consult, um, I'll quickly munch on something. And um, if I'm really lucky um, or maybe I was particularly hangry, Mark, or cranky, um, a, a, um, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee will appear in front of me. Um, usually it doesn't happen because I'm at pains to try and make sure that I don't ask any of the support staff to make me a coffee because I make all of them myself. <laughs> um, but very occasionally, Mark, um, it must be when I'm super stressed, um, um, God bless them, um, one of the staff members will come and um, plonk a um, steaming cup of some sort of hot beverage in front of me and I'll, it will calm me down, so it's good, yeah. But, um, yeah, no, we, we have lots, lots of little munchies and that and our – our veterinary wholesalers that we buy our, um, all our drugs and provisions from, they usually send a little box of something, you know, a box of um, chocolate biscuits or, or little savoury munchies every time we do a drug order and um, they just sit around in the clinic and um, the staff munch on them all. Um, usually by the time I want to go and have one of the chocolates, they've all been eaten, unfortunately, and then I do get angry but um no what about yourself oh, I, I am i'm very lucky to have uh, a uh, you know substantial healthy meal and i try and make sure i take that uh, half hour out um think about something else and and have a meal i think that um that refreshes you uh, very much in the middle of the day and just like you i know um that uh, you know i think i'm keeping it pretty secret i think when i am getting a bit upset with a case or um, the way that a client is communicating, um, I I try to maintain a, a very, um, you know, a demeanour that's uh, deadpan and relaxed. But um, obviously when those cups of steaming hot coffee appear on the desk, people are seeing that, uh, you know, I'm not concealing it nearly as well as I think I am at times. And, and it is a good sign for me to... Uh, just be aware that um, that not only the um, the other staff can see it, but probably the clients can tell that I'm a bit on edge as well. Yes, so I think the take-home message with that is just looking after yourself and looking after your staff and and looking out for those those cues, visual and, and non-visual cues that um, perhaps this person isn't having a good day or a good afternoon, or a good week, or a good uh, morning, and to stop and say to them, hey, are you okay, the old, are you okay, um, and see what's happening, and um, offer them some chocolate and some <laughs> coffee and, and um, a chat, and then um, half an hour later, after everybody's been crying about whatever drama's going on in whoever's life, um, you all feel a lot better, don't you, You Mark? definitely do. When you get that out there and, and you... Um, uh, talk about the issues that are getting you. It does make you feel better, and um, and oftentimes they are um, like a, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I know personally coping with the clients and the clients' expectations, and um, that seems to be a recurring one for me. And 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 sharing that with the staff and um, learning to deal with the 
the issues with clients as a team, and that certainly makes it uh, much easier for me to cope. And I think it uh, it makes it easier for everyone who has to deal with them. Um, that there's a greater understanding of where the clients are coming from when we're communicating about their issues. And often, if you have that client who's a bit upset or short with you and they're a regular client and you're not quite sure what's happening um, these days uh, I'm a little bit careful but these days I will inquire um, directly with the client what's happening there and and, and then you realize that there's something going on in their life or their their day or their week that's um, they're paying it out on you um, and they immediately usually apologize and um, once they've got it off their chest and you realize that hey everybody has a bad day and a bad um, a bad hour and a bad time and and it's not personal um, I think it's the key to that um, for for veterinary nurses or technicians who are just starting out in the profession or in any in any aspect of the of the job um, that that it it's rarely if ever personal it's um it's a lash out um it's something else usually within their life or, or, or something that's not coping and it's not, not directed at that individual. And I think that's one of the key aspects of dealing with um, complaints, Mark, isn't it? It's realising that it's not a personal complaint and an attack on Mark or, or Brendan directly. It's more at the process um, went wrong somewhere in um, dealing with their animal and um, working through that and, and, and saying to them, look, how can we fix it? What 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 do you think went wrong and, and what do you think we can do to fix what you perceived as, as going wrong? And um, that's where it's getting back to that mentoring, Mark, with, with new veterinary nurses or technicians. They need, you know, have a have a mentor within the practice who's who's um, who does the same job as you do and um, watch them and learn from them. And um, it's the art of veterinary science, isn't it, Mark? Well, it is, and as you said to begin with, that, the art of veterinary science um, is, in my opinion, equal parts. Um, uh, um, you know, the science of what we do, the the, uh, the the medicine and surgery, the work with the animals. But it, we don't ever want to, un- want to underestimate the the importance of the people in our practice, those we work with, those we uh, see as clients. Um, it's absolutely critical that we balance those things out. And we're good at both those areas of our profession, Brendan. I think we are, Mark. I think we are. Now, my recipe, Mark, you said you wanted I did. a recipe. I made uh, I made my um, gnocchi the other night. Um, and um, it's a very simple recipe, the gnocchi recipe that I, I use. So it's um, one kilogram of potatoes. I wouldn't panic about what type of potatoes. Don't don't fuss the small things, Mark. One kilo of potatoes. We usually go with two kilos because we eat a couple of bowls of it. And I also give some to the dog sometimes. Um, and we um, keep a little bit for lunch the next day. So, but for every one kilo of potatoes, and all you do is you boil the potatoes. So with the skins on is a simple way of like doing your it. Sort of all recipe. the potatoes. With the skins on um, until they're soft, so you put a fork or a knife through them. It usually takes 20 to 35 minutes or so, depending on the size of the potatoes in a huge pot, a little bit of salted water. Um, Don't throw out the water because you're going to use that water to cook the gnocchi at the end, okay? Um, And it saves you having to pour out water and pour it back in again. Um, Fish out the boiled potatoes, Mark, and put them in a little strainer. Um, if you want to get fancy, get a little um, potato um, sieve, you know, a little potato crusher. It's a little, um, you know, they cost about $10 or so. I think they're called potato sieves here. So you just mash the potatoes. And for every one kilo of potatoes that you boiled, you put 100 grams of plain flour, Mark. And while it's still hot or warm, and mix that together. And that's your basic gnocchi recipe. And that, if you do it that way, you've even got that's the vegan gnocchi recipe, Mark. Um, if you don't want the vegan one, it's adding a little bit of egg. So it's adding one egg per that mix of one kilo and 100 grams. Um, you may have to add a little bit more flour, um, depending on how well it comes together. And then you just use a little rolling pin, or I just use my um, hands to roll it out into 
big tubes and then use a, a knife to cut it and then um, you put it onto a table, um, a tablecloth that's been dusted with flour. Okay, um, and that's it. The, and I think one of the tricks with making gnocchi is not over mixing um, the mix once you've put the flour and the and the potato together, Mark, and they'll stay nice and fluffy. Um, and then you boil that water again that you cook the potatoes in, and you put the gnocchi in there. And um, when it rises to the top, it's ready. And you fish it out again, and it's ready to add to whatever sauce you decide to mix it with. So making gnocchi is easy, Mark, and um, it tastes nothing like nothing like um, store bought um, gnocchi, even the fresh store bought stuff. So make it at home. So that's my recipe for the week. Literally drooling. I'm going to have to go and eat something very, very quickly. <laughs> I think you've had it. I have indeed, gnocchi, haven't you? You you had it. One time when you came, um, were you, um, did you have stomach pains for the next few days or were you okay? I thoroughly enjoyed a very tasty meal and I had no ill after effects besides the post-prandial somnolence. Uh, I think that was just, I started talking um, and you (laughs) fell asleep. Um, So, well, on that um, point, um, we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Vet.